In 2019, Dr. Aisha Khoury was recruited to become founding faculty at Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. She developed case-based curricula, implementing flipped classroom and active learning pedagogies. She served as a small group facilitator and equity, inclusion, and diversity champion and workgroup member. On August 28, 2020, within hours of engaging her small group in a critical discussion on bias and racism in medicine, she was targeted, suspended, and ultimately terminated without transparency or due process. We begin the interview by discussing her termination, what she felt led to it, and although with the lack of transparency, she still hasn't been informed. We use this as a jumping-off point to discuss allyship, or in her situation, lack thereof. We then move on to why there is medical mistrust among minoritized communities, including a discussion on why we now use words like minoritized and enslaved. We finish with the discussion on how to address SARS-CoV-2 vaccine hesitancy in the setting of justifiable medical mistrust. Her argument is that there is less hesitancy in older population. So if we address the inequities in vaccination access and actually get those older patients vaccinated the older population will then be able to influence the hesitations of the younger population. Dr. Khoury grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and completed her medical degree there at Morehouse School of Medicine. After completing an internal medicine residency and working as a primary care physician, she returned to Morehouse School of Medicine to complete training in public health and preventative medicine and earned a Master of Public Health. After this, Dr. Corey returned to the Southeastern Permanente Medical Group and pioneered a new role there as a clinical decision unit internist. This encompassed work in quality management, process improvement, and evaluation of treatment outcomes. Committed to education and advocacy early in her career, she served as an adjunct clinical assistant professor and admissions committee member at Morehouse School of Medicine, where she was later inducted into the White Coat Society for demonstrating compassionate care and community service. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Resolve, a physician contract review company. At Resolve, they believe that knowledge is power for physicians, and that power gives you control over your financial future. Resolve believes that by mining, analyzing, and synthesizing data, they can provide you with the information and insight that empowers you to diagnose the health of your career, fully understand your worth, and maximize your full potential. As a company founded by a doctor, for doctors, Resolve's focus is on the well-being of those whose purpose in life is to care for the well-being of others. To have this incredible company review your employment contract, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve. The link is also in the show notes. Dr. Aisha Corey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. I'm excited that we were connected and uh, finally able to talk to each other. Yes, yes. So we we really can't start our conversation without first discussing the most recent events in your professional life. So some of my listeners may have read about it, but for those who haven't, can you tell us what happened? Sure, sure. Uh, In 2019, I was recruited to be founding faculty at Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. 
Uh, part of its values are dedicated to equity, inclusion, and diversity. As such, uh, that is woven into the curriculum. And on August 28th, 2020, um, during a moderated discussion about bias and, and racial racism in medicine, uh, after that class, within nine hours, I was suspended and um, ultimately fired as of a week or so ago. Wow. I'm, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, what information, you know, did you, did you hear anything about cause? Like, was it? No, I, um, I received a call around 9 p.m. that evening. The class ended at about 12.20, I believe. I received a call about 9 p.m. that evening and uh, from the senior associate dean of community affairs. And she just said that my teaching privileges had been revoked uh, because of a, so, so that there could be an investigation into the class. I was kind of in a daze hearing that. Uh, <laughs> And it took me a couple of days to kind of recover. And this is through the weekend. And, and so Sunday, I, I just started peppering her with questions. What, what policy have I violated? You know, you know, what happened? Was there a complaint? And then ultimately, I received an email uh, from her saying that there was a complaint about the class. And that was the cause of my suspension. Huh. But never clarity on, on what the complaint was, uh, who complained, uh, I've never spoken with leadership about the class. I was uh, subjected to an investigation by uh, human resources officers uh, with my medical group, but no one actually affiliated directly with the school. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a moment to take a deep breath. Yeah, yeah, it, it just—it's really unbelievable, right? That they supposedly yeah. are, are founded on these on these principles, and yet there was something in this conversation that. Or in this in this class you were teaching that that caused that to happen. Uh, Absolutely, um, I mean, and it's stunning. So August twenty eighth was the fifty seventh anniversary of the March on Washington, right? So the fifty seventh anniversary of the "I Have a Dream" speech. Yeah. And so as a as a black woman physician and educator, here I am, having moved to California with a very diverse class, having a really incredible, moving conversation where my students are truly engaged and. I, I think anyone who has any doubts about, you know, well, she must have done something or said something, they can read on on Twitter my students supporting me and fighting for me and my return to the school. Can you elaborate a little more on what the class was about? Like what, you know, sure, teach, first. To, and then we're going to be talking about that later in the interview. You're ultimately going to end up teaching some of that class to us, to, to the listeners yeah. here. Um, but, yeah. but, I mean, what, what were you discussing in a little more detail? Sure, sure. So um, it's a moderated class. So I didn't go in there with a, a, a lecture per se. Um, but when we, when we go back to August 2020, you have to think that the Kenosha shootings had just happened in Wisconsin. Jacob Blake had just been shot by the police and paralyzed. Um, there was a, a murder by police um, in, in Pasadena, several blocks from the school, and the students were wrestling with this. Uh, as a student body, you know, many of the students because uh, were attracted to the school for the values of the school. And so amongst the student body, there was this desire to, to speak out. And they were wrestling with how to come forward. And that week just happened to coincide with uh, them um, having other topics in some of their other classes around bias and racism in medicine. And so that was, you know, everything from discussing uh, papers on the disproportionate uh, treatment of pain of, of Black people in the emergency department. 
and thoughts that, you know, well, Black people may have thicker skin or they don't have as many nerves or they just don't feel pain in the same way. So they're not getting treatment similar to their white counterparts. They had discussions of uh, outcomes of Black women uh, in pregnancy. And we see examples of that with Serena Williams. And so in my class, we were asked to incorporate some of the discussions from the earlier classes that week. And that paired with the dean sending out an email to discuss, you know, what was going on in America at large, these shootings, started a discussion. So (laughs) I just wanted to give some context for the class. So I started first by acknowledging the importance of the day, right? So uh, you, you may recall that in response to the protests of the summer, there was another march on Washington that day. And so we acknowledged the importance of the anniversaries of that day. We discussed how students were feeling about the email from the dean, what were they feeling and thinking about what was happening in in the world around them. And uh, again, it also was the 65th anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching. And so it's really easy when we're looking at American history to say, okay, here's a 14-year-old boy who was lynched, right? And here we're still talking about Black men being murdered by the police without the seeming due process that we as American citizens should be, should expect. And then how does that translate into medicine when we're living in a society that, it, that, that still struggles with racism? Because it's my belief, and I, and I think we have enough data to prove this, that medicine is not this microcosm of, that is separate from society. And so one of the discussions uh, or one of the points I was trying to make in the class is that there is a weight of medical history that we all carry, and that's regardless of race, right? Just because we have the privilege of being physicians. But in making that decision, we all carry the weight of, of anything that is wrong because our patients are living in society. They don't just walk into the clinic doors and suddenly there's just this like kumbaya moment. <laughs> Um, where where they feel that they will be heard and respected. They're coming in with the weight of the history they're aware of and their personal histories of being abused, potentially. So again, we talked about the anniversaries. We talked about extrajudicial judicial killings. We talked about Black Lives Matter. We pointed out some points in medical history, whether it was Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks. And at one point... In the discussion, I recommended the book White Fragility to a student. Um, And it's a book that's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a book that's on the anti-racism list, resource list within the school. Um, But for some reason that after I made that comment, my co-facilitator, I don't know if he was triggered, but he just suddenly had this outburst and just with this elevated voice, very emotive, you know, just in front of the entire group said that I was being inappropriate. I can't be talking about white fragility. Um, Even though everything that I've said was factual, it was inappropriate to have the discussion. And that was very much not (laughs) what the students felt. And they, and they shared that with him, but it it definitely changed the tide of the conversation. And I, you know, I, as a moderator and educator, I, I, I gave the students an opportunity to speak and, and then really brought the class to a close. I mean, it seems to me that you, you really, it's almost, a, it's a critical part of the conversation, right? Like, 
what are what are the things that are holding us back from progress, right? And white fragility yes. is yes. one of them, right? Yes. So yeah. um, I mean, yeah. it's I think it's an unfortunate title, but <laughs> you know, if I make a rec- a book recommendation, I can't help the title of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes branding isn't isn't the everybody's strong suit. Yeah. But, um, but uh, wow. Uh, so I guess I guess you 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 were able to identify the specific interaction, um, or at least what what you think was the specific interaction that may have. You but, know, I yeah. yeah I mean, I'm my sure you poured over that. Yes, and you know, and initially, um, I I. And I don't want to make you relive it, right? Yeah. This is yeah. this is this is. <laughs> I appreciate you know that. a traumatizing experience, and I think you know I think I think we can move on from this rather than making yeah. make you uh, go through this again. Yeah, um, I'll just make one point: is that you know whenever we talk about uh, bias or racism, and especially in healthcare, people are going to be uncomfortable, and it's up to the institutions that say that they're committed to these these discussions and these efforts to protect all those involved. Um, and that includes protecting people who have a lived experience of of not only witnessing this as a patient, but as a professional. And we should be able to tell our stories without fear of retaliation. Agreed. So I think this is a good time to talk about allyship, right? Sure. So when this happened, where were your allies? And did anyone provide a good example for what allyship looks like? This might be a short answer. Uh, yeah, it's a short answer uh, because the primary folks within the institution who I, I know fought for me, you know, privately and then publicly are mostly black um, and then Asian. Um, and so publicly or privately, at least not beknownst to me because they haven't contacted me, none of my white colleagues um, have reached out to me. And that is something that I'm still trying to grapple with because I know that I was told after my suspension that I couldn't speak with anyone, any faculty, I couldn't reach out to anybody. And, and I was later told that the faculty were, and students were told the same thing, that they were not to reach out to me. But I just really thought that after I was officially fired, I would be getting, you know, these phone calls and emails of, you know, we've been thinking about and we support you and we're so sorry this happened. You you know, and I just, um, I, I've been met with silence, but I understand that, that that that's the majority response within the school is silence. Yeah. And this is, I think, something we all need to grapple with, right? Because it's it's the easy thing to do. Right. And often But the, the silence is traumatic. Yeah. 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 Um, and the silence allows... The silence allows misbehavior to occur. Yeah. You know, just from a faculty perspective, to be to be suspended with no due process should be concerning to any faculty member, regardless of other ins and outs. And, and so you think at the very least that people would speak up about that. Yeah. yeah. It's disappointing. Disappointing because you mm. think that we were, we, you know... It, Every time we think we're making progress. Um, yeah, yeah. And I alluded to this. I wrote a couple of, um, you know, just, just to kind of also get my own thoughts out. But um, again, I could see how my story was resonating with other people. I, I put a couple of um, 
posts out on Medium. And, and one of them was just, you know, reflecting that, you know, this was the summer that many of us knelt together for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So this was the summer I felt that I could come as all of I am, all of who I am as a Black woman, a physician, an educator to my workplace and that I would be supported and I would be in a safe space, especially at an institution that is named after Bernard J. Tyson and um, purports to be uh, equitable. And giving a lecture on it or a, a conversation <laughs> on implicit bias, like... Um, <laughs> that I was asked to teach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have it's to laugh, just, otherwise I'll start crying. It's, un- so. it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, um, absolutely. It is. So... Uh, Again, trying to take you away from that trauma to yes, teach us, um, yes. to teach us about it. Um, so, you know, we were initially, you know, when we were first introduced, the the purpose of the introduction was uh, for you to speak to us about the vaccine, right? Right, and, right. And the inequity of of how COVID has impacted minoritized communities and... Actually, can we can we talk again about that word, minoritized? Sure, sure. Because we, sure, we had sure, a great sure. conversation before we hit record. And you know, what I had told you was, for me, it's a new word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not anything that I've heard until the last few months, but I've been seeing it a lot more. And, and you had a great explanation for why we use the term minoritized and why we use the term enslaved rather than enslaved peoples rather than slaves. So yes, um, yes. can you talk a little about that? Oh, sure. I, I think um, we have all have to make a conserv- concerted effort in the word choices that we make. And uh, when we use certain words, certain imagery and context comes up. And so for me, when I use minoritized, it's an action word. So something is happening to a group of people and this group of people did not do this to themselves. If I just use the word minority, I think of that solely in proportion of statistics. And so the analogy is similar to, to slave. And so growing up, that was the term that was used. But slave for me does not bring up a person with a full range of human emotions that had dreams and desires for their life and is experiencing a trauma in the same way that enslaved does. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to our word choices and recognize that uh, you know, there are active systems of oppression that are causing lives to be more difficult to, to the folks around us, to people in our communities. One of my earlier episodes on the podcast uh, was about how to talk, how to have effective conversations with patients that have difficulty with their weight. And um, uh, what the author of the article had, had discussed that is that our words inform our thoughts mm-hmm. and our words inform our thoughts of others. So by, by using these terms, enslaved minor, and minoritized, it changes how we think about those people. So it's, right. important to, it's, it's important to use those words, not only for that, but when we use those words, the listeners' cha- mm-hmm. thoughts are changed by our mm-hmm. choice of words. So it's, it's, I, I really think it's, um, it's a yeah. beautiful use of language. Yeah. And more and, influential than than people might realize. Yeah, and for and for me, you know, I think about just you know the the incredible innovations that humanity has just made historically, right? And so, when you think about folks who were enslaved, I mean, these are musicians and scientists and artists, right? These are people that had so much more potential than the work that they were forced to do. 
And the same way I think about minoritized, how could I be spending my time if I were not um, having discussions about my suspension? How could so many Black faculty be spending their time if they weren't pigeonholed into doing diversity, equity, and, and inclusion work if other people took that on? And, and how could we all be working together to really push medicine forward beyond these conversations? Because in some ways, and maybe this is my naivete, I still think about medicine as this like honorable fraternity of very compassionate, empathic people. And I'm really having to deal with the fact that, no, we're all just people. Yeah, we're no better. <laughs> as much as we like to think otherwise, we are no better than anyone else. We're no right. better than anyone else. And, and um, you know, I, I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, a police officer who, you know, had gotten defensive, let's say more of an online um, interaction with a acquaintance, I think would be a better way to, to put the actual <laughs> interaction. And so, you know, we were, you know, the, the response was, well, I'm not racist. I treat everyone the same way. And I, you know, I treat everyone just the same way. I'm, I would never, whatever. And so my response was, you know, it's interesting that you would say that. Let me talk about my profession. You know, and you, and when you, you know, the, there was just this paper, and I, I apologize for my ignorance because I, I won't be able to talk about the specifics of it. But you know that that the ultimately black newborns did better yeah. if their pediatricians were black than if right. their pediatricians were white, right? right? Right. And and so it, you know, we're we need to be able to take a hard look at ourselves as a profession and as individuals. And so, you know, when I turned that around and I was able to Google it and find like the, you know, cite it, mm -hmm. um, you know, my profession has these flaws and we need to work past this. And I would right. imagine that other professions are the same way. So, right, you know, we right. need to, we can't just be pointing to police officers to show the flaws in their system when we have the same flaws in ours and, and we need to figure out a way to work past them. We need to lead yeah. by example. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that physicians have certain characteristics that we're, we're hardworking, we are leaders, um, we have the capability to, to lead this charge. Um, but we are also fairly avoid in no spotlight. <laughs> um, and I, and, and I, I think we, we, um, we don't always take advantage of all of our gifts so that we can really lead a lot of the social change. That needs to happen, but I have faith that we we have we have the characteristics and the qualities too. It's just how invested are you in making life better for all of the patients that you come across? Doing the work, right? Doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, so, the history of how the medical establishment has treated the black community, right? Hopefully, all our listeners know how egregiously the black community and other minoritized communities have been treated by the medical establishment, so we don't need to you know, reteach all of that. But And hopefully there aren't any more pictures of statues or of J. Marion Sims up anymore. Uh, I, I really hope not. But that is an ancient history, right? Yeah. Why is that not ancient history? Why is there still medical mistrust? Oh, I think that that part is easy because there are still incidents, right? So we, we, can, we can take them back to times of, of slavery right? But, but they're recent. When you have Dr. Susan Moore getting on Facebook Live, because as an internist, she feels, I believe she was an internist, but as a physician, she feels that she's being mistreated. 
and her only recourse she feels is to go on social media, that is very, that's a very powerful statement because that's someone within the establishment, right? When, when people see my story and they say, well, oh my goodness, if that's how they treat a doctor, how will they treat me? So this is, it's, it's not that this is ancient history. And I think for, for many, and, and just going back to the Serena Williams example again, so this is someone who, I mean, her socioeconomic status is well above many of uh, the Black folks who will be encountering the system, right? And she has to fight for the healthcare she needs so that she doesn't die of something that we all know the statistics about, right? That Black women are three to four times more likely to die after pregnancy than white women. Um, so the stories are ongoing. This is not history. And I think that's the problem. And at some point, when is medicine going to say, oh, enough is enough, right? We are, we are going to treat all of our patients for pain equally. We're going to prescribe life-saving drugs after uh, heart caths equally. We're going to pay attention to the symptoms women are having after pregnancy equally so that we don't have to keep, con- we, d- we don't have to continue to read about these statistics. So we did, we, I actually did an episode a while ago with Dr. Uche Blackstock on yeah. implicit bias. So there's so much that I want to talk to you about. You know, if, if the listener is interested in, in learning about implicit bias, you can, you can listen to that episode because I, I really want to get to, because the, because of the COVID inequities, I want to be able to move along to that. Um, so the, sure. the, so that, you know, if you're interested in, in some self-reflection and learning how you as an individual can, can work to improve your interactions with minoritized community, definitely check out that episode, um, minoritized individuals. Um, so the communities that have been hardest hit by this virus have been Black, Latinx, and Native American communities. But if there's a push to give greater access to the vaccine to those communities, this might be perceived as experimentation, right? Like, well, we're gonna give we're gonna give it to you first. Wait, wait, wait. The system that's been treating me poorly for so long is gonna give it to my community first. Why don't you give it to a second or third? Why don't you all take it first and then so? Uh, like the first U.S. recipient of of the vaccine was where I am on Long Island, Northwell, <laughs> and she's a a black, black nurse, nurse, uh-huh. right? So I'm sure this was by design. I'm sure it was intentional. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on you know the the intention might be there, but it might end up backfiring. What would what were some flaws? What would have been a better way to go about it? Uh, so a couple of things, a first thought. So the, the, the first people to truly actually get it were folks in healthcare. So I pushed back a little on this idea of Black people kind of being the first, especially since we're seeing now that there is vaccine rollout amongst people in the community, that, that this vaccine is by and large not going where it needs to go. Uh, and so if, if we are saying that like you already pointed out, it's it's black and brown people who are disproportionately dying of this vaccine, then we would have wanted a rollout that pushed the vaccine and the people who were going to be hardest hit. And I think 
already, as you alluded to, it's about trust. And so the messaging needed to come through folks who are trusted. And it can't come, I, I, I think, in, in kind of this big box, one size fits all messaging. I think on an individual level, I, I don't know that patients are thinking largely of the Tuskegee's and the Henrietta Lacks situations, right? I think they're thinking of episodes much more close to home. And I also think we have to focus on the fact that, by and large, older Black people are very interested in getting the vaccine, right? So I, I know there are some studies out that say, you know, it's a 49%, only 49% of Black people are interested in getting the vaccine. But when you break that down by age, the majority of older people who are the ones we need to get the vaccine are actually interested. So let's get the vaccine where it needs to be. And the rollout with regard to that has been abysmal. Well, that's that's you know that's a matter of logistics. I don't know. Hopefully, yeah. some of our listeners are in are in a position to be influencing that uh, with with regard to the rollout. Yeah, um, and I I just want to make because you know I think that's about access, right? And so, if, if you want certain communities to have this, you have to meet those communities where they are. Yeah, and it can't be that you you if if we already know that there are access issues uh, in traditional medical settings. So that's just not going to work for those communities, right? You just have to kind of change it up. Well, I, you know, every state has been doing it differently. And I right. can tell you what's been going on in New York is right. you have to go online constantly, constantly mm -hmm. in order right. to be able to identify a spot. And then you have to get, be able to get transportation to that spot. And that spot may be far away. Right. So right now you're favoring people who are, you know, because it's, for older people, so people who aren't working because mm -hmm. they have time to log on whenever. Mm -hmm. People who have easy access to transportation because they can mm -hmm. go wherever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you're really favoring a, a very specific slice of the community that has mm -hmm. some privilege that sets them apart, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and systemic racism tells us that those people are more, more like, much more likely to be white. Right. And I'll, you know, I'll give my father as an example. Um, so my father's in Georgia. He's in Atlanta. Um, he's in his 70s. So automatically qualifies. But the locations, there are three locations <laughs> where he could get this, none of which he was familiar with. And so the first time that he tried to go, my brother had to go meet him because my father did not feel like he could navigate the space where, where this was. And that's, that's sad that as a physician, I know my father needs to get this. <laughs> but one, I'm far away, so I can't help him. And two, this is not made easy. That's just an aside. I'm sure you can cut but, that out. But that's, no, no, no. It's a, it's a great example, right? Like, like you said, so how do we meet? Because, well, so most of my podcast series has, the series about vaccine hesitancy has been about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Right. And so, but this is an issue of hesitancy. This is an issue of, People wanting to get it, but not knowing where to get it, not knowing how to get it, how or, to get it, or yeah. knowing those things and just not being able to do it. So, yeah. so I, how? what are some examples of meeting people where they are? Yeah. In case and there I, is a listener that that does that is involved in public health and, and can influence the system. Yeah, and so I, I, I think that's about... So the success, success stories that I see where I'm hearing stories of um, running out of vaccine just because so many people have gotten it is, is vaccine administration in churches. Black community organized, Black physicians organizing within communities 
for distribution. There is even talk of, you know, should there be vaccination in barbershops? Again, it's about meeting people where they are. And I feel very strongly uh, when we're talking about issues of trust in the Black community, once someone, once people start getting the vaccine, we will only continue to see increased vaccination. The more people that get the vaccine, the more people will get the vaccine. Exactly. Yeah. And so if we, instead of look at, you know, vaccine hesitancy and we focus on, well, you know, statistics are telling us that the, the Black folks, the older Black folks who need the vaccine are interested in get the vaccine. Let's get the vaccine out to them. And when they have it, they will talk to their neighbors, their friends, their children and encourage them to get it. Yeah. Get it to all the I matriarchs mean, and patriarchs who are then going to influence everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to mention something, though, um, because, you know, vaccine, it, it, it is still an issue. There are still going to be people that are going to be re- reluctant to get it. And one thing that was pointed out to me by Warren Sapp, of all people, uh, he's a football player. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about football, so I don't, I don't remember. I probably followed when he was playing. But, um, but something that he said on Twitter was when you're registering for the vaccine, you give your demographic information. And so some in minoritized communities might think that means that they're getting a different vaccine, right? That's what was on his Twitter feed. A whole bunch of people were saying, I am not going to check off black because I know that if I do, I'm getting a different, I'm going to get something else, right? That goes back to that mistrust. It sounds like what you're saying is, Brad, don't have to sweat that stuff. The priority is vaccinate the older people, and then they'll they'll bring you know a lot more people with them. Yeah. Um, so I don't even know if we need to address that issue. Do we? Do we need to? Um, well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, folks with celebrity have their opinions, and and you know they they have these automatic platforms, and so it's it's up to us in healthcare to kind of uh, fight against some of some of that. For me, checking off black is holding vaccine distribution accountable to ensuring that the folks who are the most vulnerable are getting this. And if we do not have this data, we cannot hold these these places accountable. And again, I think it goes back to trust. I think again, it's it's hesitancy, it's a slow yes, but let's let's get the vaccine to the folks who want to get the vaccine and everything else I feel very confident will kind of fall in place. So my next questions are kind of related. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to link them together. Um, sure. There was that article in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Beyond Tuskegee, Vac- Vaccine Distrust and Everyday Racism, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford and Simar Singh Bajaj. Uh, and what they had discussed in their article with different interventions, mm-hmm. um, like, like you had said, right? Go to where the communities are, to the trusted individuals, to the churches, to the barbershops. And so all of the interventions that they centered on were messaging from a Black person, mm-hmm. a Black doctor, a Black scientist, in a Black barbershop. So what can, if we want to be allies, right? You had said earlier, you know, what could I be doing if I, if I wasn't spending all my time on an equity committee? <laughs> right? So how can non-minoritized physicians be good allies and help share the load? And, and the second part of the question is, but that's more for messaging in general, more on a one-to-one basis, right? 
So we have our patients, right? Yeah. And maybe they're they're coming to us for the first time, or maybe they're coming to us for the 20th time. And so you're their trusted physician, but I'm white and they're not, right? right? So how do I go about discussing the vaccine with someone where the system has really betrayed their trust over and over again. Sure, sure. And I think that especially if it's it's if it's the first conversation, your first interaction with the patient, you maybe just start the conversation, right? But you don't necessarily, you know, hold or berate them. There I would argue first- that that should really never take place even yeah, in the 10th interaction. But yeah, uh, you can you can make more firm recommendations. Yeah, yeah. We know how we are in healthcare. And I know that there are still people who feel that that's the way to go because yeah, there's- the paternalistic the, approach. To, yes, Right. Yes. They're very, yes, there we still have very paternalistic attitudes in healthcare. There's a phrase that I really love and it, it's, it's people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I, I think uh, one misstep is that um, you have not necessarily shown your allyship or, or proved your allyship in the community. And then you want to start having this conversation, right? And it, it can have this kind of um, white savior uh, mythos around it, right? And so one, especially if you're in a community where you have kind of made a name and face for yourself of being someone of the community and caring about issues, this is going to be a much easier conversation. Uh, but when you are one-on-one with that patient, it's to, it's to really hold them through the decision-making. And I guarantee that for many of the people you interact with, there is going to be a few stories of medical mistrust, well-earned, that they have not yet worked through. And so being willing to have the conversation one-on-one, as vulnerable as you as a, as, a, as a practitioner, as a physician can make yourself, will actually help you go a long way to getting your patients to change your mind with regard to that. It may not take one conversation or one interaction, but if you start that conversation, if there's someone, if that patient knows you to be someone who's willing to have difficult conversations and willing to listen, especially when it comes to matters that are difficult like race, right, like gender inequity, you'll go much farther in the long run. And I would really urge people to start having those conversations because this is not going to be the the only public health issue we're going to be talking about, right? So right now it's COVID. In five years, it could be something else. But are you laying the groundwork that really says that you've, you've cut your teeth as an ally for you to be able to have these conversations? Does that apply on the individual level or on the community level? Because I could see how it would apply on the community level, right? Like you can't be an influencer without earning without earning the trust. But like if I have a patient that comes to me for, you know, I'm an ENT, sinus infections, right? They get recurrent sinus infections. Yeah. They see me. Um, like when in that interaction does, aside from me just earning their trust by treating them well, Right. I mean, do I discuss race during those visits, right? Like, because it's not something that's germane to their treatment of their, the thing that I'm seeing them for. I think being willing to have the conversation wherever it takes you is what's important. 
And so if you say, hi, Mrs. Smith, I know I'm seeing you for your sinus infection, but I was just hopeful that you're going to be doing your COVID vaccine. That's going to perk that person up. Why is my ENT care about me getting my COVID vaccine? <laughs> right? Um, and they may be willing to engage in the conversation with you. And you have to take the, the opportunity to be vulnerable and to allow that person to share what their experience is. So some people are willing and wanting to have the conversation, right? You're a specialist, right? They know that you're smart. They want to hear what you have to say, right? And we have to take advantage of that. It's true. <laughs> As an internist, I'm telling you. One of my, one of my partners is fond of saying, you see a specialist and something special happens. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter that we've told them the exact same thing. Anyway, if the conversation goes to anger over something that happened to their child, something that happened to them. They don't, you know, um, listen, hear it, and then turn it around, right? Most people want to live productive, healthy lives. And, and most of us are trained in, in motivational interviewing where we can help navigate some of these conversations. I know that's that not always the best. episode. <laughs> last week's episode was actually motivational interviewing for vaccine yeah. hesitancy so thank yeah. you for that beautiful tie-in <laughs> and i wasn't even paid for that nope. <laughs> um so so no i i think you just have to be willing to go uh, uh wherever the conversation takes you but i also invite and this is where things like what does your office look like does your office space invite a conversation that says Equity and inclusion are important to me. What does that office look like? Because mine is just filled with, you know, tools and instruments. You know, like it's not it's not the most well. It's it actually looks more like a dentist's office than most other doctors' office because of what we do. So yeah. you know, what do you mean by by that? Because I don't think what you mean is like the instruments on the table and the white sheet of paper <laughs> that you sit on. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, uh, how inviting is the office? Do you have images uh, that are diverse within the office that makes people feel that they're welcome, that they're not coming into a space that's so sterile that invites them to um, really share? Do they feel like they're at a place that is warm? And so I think that's where things like artwork, things like your community service, pictures with leaders that are in the community who are respected and are diverse really comes into play and it can be very helpful. I think it's important to use that time that patients are waiting to, for, for messaging to be on, on television screens within either the waiting room or, or within the um, exam room itself. No, no, no. Uh, That's all you... Botox and hair plugs. <laughs> That's where our ads for Botox and hair plugs go. I'm just kidding. I don't do any of those things. <laughs> but just imagine. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can tell you one of the things that I love about the Black Lives Matter protests is how in communities and in storefronts, I started seeing Black Lives Matter signs. And it may be performative, but it automatically makes me feel that, oh, this is a place that cares about me. Yeah. So imagine if you had a Black Lives Matter poster in your office. Now, it might cause some controversy with some other patients, but um, it also might show other, you know, minoritized patients that, oh, this person might get it. Yeah. This is a person I'm willing to have this COVID conversation with. 
Actually, I think it would be a little easier for me. I could put a picture of my family up. My wife, my wife is black. So, but that to me seems performative, right? Like it seems like I am putting my, you know, if I'm doing it for, for that reason, you know, to, I know you're saying it's, it's to make them more comfortable in the space, but for yeah. me, it seems like I'm trying to show, I don't know. I mean, just, and I don't know that I would necessarily show your family if that's not, if that's not who you are. Well, right? I now, mean, it is because I talk about them all the time. Like with my patients, oh. they all know about, you know, my wife and my kids, but then, uh, you know, you know want to put a picture of their family on the wall. Like uh, right. you know, it's my screensaver. Well, like when they see my compute, my laptop, they see my family. Oh, well so. then, then I think you have it in. I don't think that yeah, that's yeah. The, the route for anybody, for most people. But right? for most people, yeah. But for most people, then, yeah. then but, but I see what you're, I see what you're getting at. It's, yeah. uh, um, it's a, there, there has to be something and, and it might even be the way the people that work there look mm -hmm. like having yes. diverse equity, staff. diversity, you know, this is what we're, we're talking about right. on, on, on all levels on yeah. you know, leadership and otherwise. Because um, there are just multiple ways to show that you're committed to this, if that's yeah. truly what you're interested in. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you're, you, you cannot suddenly say that you're an ally just because you put a, you know, you black out your image on your social media profile and think that that's enough, right? Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're really committed Slacktivism. to making medicine better, <laughs> then um, these are going to be easier conversations to have because you're slowly learning through all of the advocacy that you're doing, right? And there yeah. are going to be missteps. There are going to be missteps. But the key uh, is your sincerity. Yeah. To actually care. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't, this is not your bag. <laughs> and I'd rather you just kind of leave the leave the topic alone than engage. Yeah, but don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. That's a great way of saying it. Don't get in the way. This was a this was a great conversation and I really appreciate you being so open and forthcoming about what was clearly a traumatic experience and and I have to apologize because you know you you had to relive it at the beginning of the episode and that's that's hard but hopefully there are a lot of people that are going to hear this and learn from it um maybe they see something of, of themselves in it um and if they don't see how they could have been a good ally and so when the next opportunity comes for them to be an ally they will do the th not do the thing that is easy they will do the thing that is hard and do the thing that is right and so Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you reliving that for us any, any final thoughts for our listeners? Start an advocacy journey. Start an anti-racism journey. I understand most of your listeners are in healthcare, and I just think that we are an incredibly talented group of people, and we can do so much more to make our country better than, than what we saw on January 6th. Yeah. And we have to start using all of our platforms to speak out and to speak up, um, because I, I think... Uh, for most of us, we got into this because we want people to be well. And unfortunately, we cannot control wellness only in a clinic setting. We have to get out there. And if people want to follow you on social media and, you know, follow your, your journey and find yes. out what happens next, where can, where can we find you? <laughs> uh, at Aisha Khoury on Twitter, A-Y-S-H-A-K-H-O-U-R-Y. Dr. Aisha Khoury, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you, Brad. This was fun. And I, I'm really sad that it went by so fast. Such an important show with Dr. Corey. Before we end, let's give you the link for our sponsor again. 
If you need help reviewing your employment contract before you sign, reach out to a company with great online reviews and a reputation for doing that and more. Find Resolve at drpodcastnetwork.com resolve to get the review process started today. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.